Hello and welcome to the Radical Reformers podcast. I'm Andrew Laird. This podcast is for people who want to understand what it really takes to make a positive impact in public services. It features leaders from councils, the NHS, central government, charities and social enterprises, as well as think tanks and social investors. This is about policy and the implementation of policy and the grit and determination it takes to run successful public services. It's not about politics. Politics does not feature at all and the discussions are all the better for it. It's also about the stories and personal journeys of the leaders I speak to, the challenges they faced and the lessons they've learned. Running and reforming public services is incredibly difficult and I'm very grateful to these inspiring leaders for taking the time to share with others. So before we get into it, I just want to take a second to thank my friends and colleagues at Mutual Ventures for supporting me to do this podcast. My day job at Mutual Ventures is about supporting public services to be better, more sustainable and more connected to communities. This means working with central government departments to help them build bridges between policy development and local implementation. It means working with councils to help them plan for the future. And it also means working with NHS trusts to help them find their place in the new health and care system. So I hope you enjoy this podcast and that you get as much from it as I have. And don't forget to subscribe on the website or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter to make sure that you never miss a future episode. And you might even want to go back and listen to some of the older ones. This episode is with Adam Hawksby. Adam is the deputy director of the Onward Think Tank. Before that, he spent time working directly with the West Midlands Mayor, Andy Street. This episode is for anyone interested in levelling up and the different lenses through which you can consider it. These include economic development, public health, crime and antisocial behaviour and local workforce skills. Onward have conducted some fascinating research across the country and Adam relays some of the learning from that, including what levelling up activity is happening in Barrie, which many of you will know is the home of the TV hit Gavin and Stacey. Adam also discusses the concepts of levelling up fast and slow and what they mean, and it's not going to be a surprise that you need both. He also talks about how public investment and private investment need to work together in order to raise prosperity around a place and why some areas are very happy to be commuter towns and others aren't. If levelling up isn't your thing, then we also find time to explore the impact of artificial intelligence, particularly on public services, a new idea on national service, which Onward are working on, the importance of hydrogen to the net zero goal, and how patriotism has become a misunderstood concept. Let's hear from Adam. Adam, a huge welcome onto the podcast. Um, I wonder just for listeners if you could say a little bit about who you are. Absolutely. Thank you very much for, for having me. So my name's Adam Hawksby. I'm Deputy Director of the Think Tank Onward. Um, I lead uh, all of our work on levelling up, preparing the social fabric, our programmes on getting to net zero, on uh, what we call becoming a science superpower as well, um, as well as some of our political work, trying to understand where public opinion is in Westminster, um, I previously was head of policy to Andy Street, working up uh, in the West Midlands, um, and have done a range of roles kind of around levelling up urbanism, regeneration for the last 10 or so years. Fantastic. So it's always been in and around the public policy arena. 
Yeah, in different ways. So I've, you know, I've worked in charities, kind of delivering after school clubs. So trying to pursue kind of economic and social justice in a more direct sense. I've worked a bit to the public sector and civil service, but it's always been around what's the role that policy can play in the kind of public yeah. to a degree third sector in fixing some of the big problems that the UK faces. I think it's really important to have some of that practical experience of actually what it's like mm. to deliver some services because quite a lot of your peers in the policy world maybe won't have had that and will have gone straight into kind of working for an MP or whatever and then gone that route and never actually come face to face with a really vulnerable service user perhaps. Yeah and I think having a bit of an experience of both the policy political world and the practical delivery world is really useful you know I found when I was working in big public sector institutions sometimes you get bogged down in a process and you forget what you're yeah. trying to achieve and where you're trying to get to but then you know I work with kind of politicians and people in policy that can wax lyrical about where they might want to get to but there's very little detail on exactly what they're going to do to get there and how they're going to deliver on it so that you know I've enjoyed hopping between both environments. Yeah, no, I think it's really important. So, I mean, you could say the same thing about consultants, actually, that uh, particularly working in the public sector, that they don't yeah. necessarily have that much experience of seeing the impact that their work has on the end users. So I took a group of our team at Mutual Ventures up to an adult social care social enterprise called Possibilities in Greater Manchester, and we spent a day with them working with the service users. And it just gave everybody a grounding as to what, they're actually doing everything for and that felt really important for them so they really enjoyed that so before we get on to onwards work you mentioned your work with Andy Street in the West Midlands MCA can you just say a little bit about what you were doing there and and how you found that experience yeah maybe I'll go back a little bit a bit further yep. to put that in context so I um about five or so years ago now went to study in the US so I was over in Boston and um, one of the things that really struck me there was how urbanism there is a sort of discipline it's a way of seeing the world that cities towns are a, a kind of forum are a prison for a whole bunch of interrelated uh, disciplines and challenges so bits about public services about economic reform about social justice about democracy and I work for an organization called the Bloomberg Harvard City Leadership Initiative it's a sort of exec ed program for mayors around the world and their teams and it was through that that I both became really passionate about what you can do at the city scale or the urban scale um, and also met Andy Street. So, you know, Andy Street, Mayor of the West Midlands, was one of the participants on this programme and other UK mayors have flown over to New York and done this kind of training programme. So you've oh, got that's the, really interesting. So that yeah. was when he was the mayor. He yeah, 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 yeah. Did this. That's really interesting. Yeah, it's great. You've got, you know, the mayor of Reykjavik, the mayor of you know, Boise, Idaho, and the mayor of Birmingham or the West Midlands sitting there and having a conversation about, okay, how are we using data or how are we delivering frontline services or how are we bringing partners together across sectors? It's a fantastic program. I mean, that that's amazing, but you know, we're just, we'll come back to you in a second, but just from Andy Street's perspective, I think it's brilliant when leaders don't assume that they know everything and they know that they need yeah. to keep learning and keep, keep expanding their, their horizons. That's, really reassuring to me to to hear that yeah. you did that. So particularly people like Andy Street, who have, you know, have very senior roles in the private sector, he was the managing director of John Lewis, and he was very, I think, humble about the fact that being a mayor of a city is a very different role. 
Um, and it was through through that program that I met met Andy, knew I wanted to go back and work in local government, regional government at that level, certainly outside of London, because that's where I've been kind of born and raised. And after I graduated and came back to the UK, that was how I got into that role at the combined authority. So I was head of policy, kind of working both with the mayor, but also the executive team uh, at the CA. And my main thing I was responsible for was developing kind of strategies, pitches around further devolution, around how we could make best use of some of the devolved levers that the combined authority had. But I was there for four months or so when uh, COVID hit. And so actually my broader strategic policy role became um, by necessity one that was more about tactics, delivery and ensuring the organization was helpful day to day. Yeah, that's amazing, actually, just that, you know, quite a big bit of life is luck, but you need to be prepared to take that luck and just meeting Andy at that point. Uh, it, it was a you know a piece of luck for both of you, I, I would say. And yeah, that's, that's amazing how, how that happened. So what's it like in a mayor's office? I mean, what what is the day to day? Because for, I guess for some people, it will feel slightly less tactical and more strategic, maybe than working in a frontline service in a council. Would that be fair? Yeah. So combined authorities are membership bodies, right? And the, the important thing is I, so I wasn't a kind of in this mayor's office, you had a kind of group of three or four people. I was in the combined authority as an institution, yep. which, you know, the mayor chairs that kind of group, the combined authority, but actually I'm also answerable to seven local authority leaders in the West Midlands. Yeah. And so a lot of the day to day is actually about kind of coordination between those seven leaders, certainly in my job. So, you know, we had other teams that were doing the adult education budget or big bits of the Brownfield Fund. They might have been more head down delivery. That might feel a bit more like a local authority. But actually, my job in developing future facing proposals was a lot of meeting with both some of the senior officials in those local authorities, but also our universities at the time, our LEPs, our Chambers of Commerce, yeah. trying to understand, you know, what are the things we want to be focusing on? What are the levers that we might want um, in the region? What are the areas of common interest? And what areas are are not common, right? What things do we not want to do at the regional scale because they're more appropriate locally? So I think that is sometimes certainly what's lost in the comparison with um, mayors in other countries yeah. is that ours don't have the same sort of executive functions. And so it's a yeah. lot of corralling, coordinating, that sort of work. Yeah, fantastic. We could talk about that all day, but I've got such a long list of things I want to talk to you about. I'm going to keep moving. So let's move on to your time at Onwards. And particularly, I want to start by talking about levelling up, which I know is an area of interest for you and a key policy agenda item for the whole country. So there's a whole range of lenses through which you could look at the concept of levelling up. So in your view, what does or should levelling up mean? So I sometimes talk about the distinction between levelling up fast and slow and the need to do both of those things. So let me start with levelling up slow. There are clearly some big multi-generational, certainly decades long uh, inequalities that have opened up and got worse in the UK. Um, That is both north-south, but it's also kind of coastal and inland. Um, Some areas that are less productive, higher levels of uh, kind of health challenge and, and early morbidity, um, et cetera, et cetera. Range of different indicators on which these areas are challenged. And tackling that is about big economic and social plays, about transforming how education and the welfare system works in parts of the country that are left behind, in building major new infrastructure, in rebalancing uh, growth enhancing spending. 
those things take a really, really long time uh, and will take a long time to see benefits. Alongside that levelling up slow, you also need to do levelling up fast. So a report we did that we can talk about a bit more in a bit, levelling up locally, went to local areas and went to local people and said, what are the things that matter to you that would indicate progress on levelling up in your patch? And the things they talked about actually were about pride in place for things like tackling antisocial behaviour, repairing the high street. And these sorts of things, if you just did those, are probably not going to turn the tide on those big regional inequalities. But you need to do them to build a sense of you know, emerging pride, but also so that you get the space, you get the support, you get the momentum for that bigger long term stuff. And so leveling up to an agenda needs to balance those two things, the, the day to day practical thing that's probably in weeks and months and the big long term economic shifts that are probably in the years and decades. Fantastic. And if we could just ask a little bit about the link between some of the areas that you've talked about, so economic growth, health and well-being, antisocial behaviour. It's really complicated for council leaders, exec leaders and elected members to just try and figure out a plan that's going to address all of these things. Because a, a really good example was I was having a conversation with a council the other day where they've got great plans to pedestrianise a central area to try and increase footfall and to put in more seating and things like that. Now, the, the obvious thing there is that this will be great for local businesses because you'll get more people in. It's a more pleasant place to be. But then the kind of counter question is, well, won't that drive antisocial behaviour? Won't that make it a, a place where the the young will want to hang out in Verticom? Is that not my words? Yeah, yeah. I think it is. So there is this kind of whack-a-mole challenge, right? And that's why one of the reasons why working in the public sector is really interesting, that it's not as simple as, you know, some parts of the private sector where you might kind of design a product, release, measure, all the rest of it. Actually, these problems are dynamic, they're complex, they're wicked challenges. And I think that the key thing for councils to do, you know, two things. One is not try and go it alone. I think one of the big worries that I have sometimes when I speak to councils is when we say, look, you know, our work indicates you've got a real problem with X. They say, don't worry about it. We've got a strategy for that. Or we just launched a plan on that or something that, you know, something along those lines. And actually what they need to be is embedded in a wide group of empowered partners, some of yeah. whom are going to take the lead on some of these topics. Right. And that can be threatening to a council because it might mean that they're not the ones that get the funding or they lose some of the control over what happens. But actually, the only way to be resilient is to be embedded in that group of institutions. Yeah. And I think the other is in terms of focus is to identify what the binding constraint is in an area. And we talk about this in our, our Leveling Up Locally report, you know, as Quant, some quantitative analysis looking in at the data and some qual, whether that's focus group, structured interviews with um, local stakeholders, usually indicates that there's something, there's one area that's really holding a place back. That could be yeah. kind of embedded poverty and multi-generational worklessness in a particular ward or area. That could be economic inactivity due to cultural reasons. That could be about the built environment. It could be the lack of physical connectivity could be digital connectivity and the fact that people are working from home but are not connected. Yeah. Often there might be one, there might be two, but there are particular issues that you imagine kind of economic development as filling a barrel up with water that's got multiple holes. You want to put the cork in the hole at the bottom of the barrel first so that yeah. you can slowly fill this thing up. So what, what's your hole at the bottom of the barrel or at the lowest point on the barrel? Is that binding constraint analysis instead of just saying, God, this barrel's got loads of holes and here's our plan to fill all 30 of them. 
That's a really good analogy, actually. I might use that one. That makes a lot of sense, actually, because from reading your research, it's pretty clear that you can identify what the what the critical issues are in certain places that if you solve it, it will make all the rest of the things much easier to solve. And that that barrel analogy is a really important one. Just before moving on to some of the examples of good projects from your your research. So I want to ask you a little bit about public services. So when we think about leveling up, we quite often think about, um, you know, in theory, the government provides some catalyst funding and that then brings in external investment, private investment, which is at the end of the day, what will drive everything. Government can't support a place just by government funding to become vibrant. But there's also the need for public services to keep pace as well. And for even basic things like GP provision and school provision and things. And do you, do you think from your discussions with councils that the connection between get trying the, the effort to try and get the, the private external investment, the new businesses, the new factories and things, do you think that they join that up with the need to match it with supporting infrastructure like public services? Um, not always. I think that. One of the challenges is that economic development, well, so I think you need to do two things. You do need quite a hard-nosed approach to economic development, which requires yeah. a specific set of capabilities and insights that are around what are core commercial drivers, what does the private sector need, yeah. you know, how do I boost inward investment, et cetera, et cetera. You need that team. That might be called an economic development team, might be called investment promotion team, whatever else. You need yeah. that capability. You also need to recognise, as you say, that, Actually, a lot of businesses looking to relocate are going to be looking at can my employees live a healthy life, access good schools, enjoy the public realm, et cetera, et cetera. And so you need an approach across your whole organization which recognizes the interdependencies between different bits of the economy. I worry it sometimes that that kind of interdependency approach means that you lose the commercial hard nosed private sector bit. And so, yes, of course, we need an inclusive growth approach. The economy refers to a wide range of levers. But I do usually want to see in council some sort of economic development team and someone whose job it is to say, yeah, all right, fine, we do need all of these things. But actually, these are the businesses we want to attract. This is what they're saying to us. And that's why we should divert some of our funds to this particular, you know, vertical bit of industrial strategy. I think that's really wise. And it's not always the popular thing to talk about for some reason. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it's, it, it is the hard end of it, but it is what will eventually drive the prosperity of, of an area. So I'm um, just moving on to some of the stuff that you've been looking at. So your research is focused on a number of councils and the specific projects and interventions that they've run, all in the interest of improving local areas. So are there any really innovative examples which have jumped out for you? Yeah, so let me um, let me tell you a story about Barry in South Wales, um, which is a which place will be famous on. from Gavin and Stacey. From Gavin and Stacey, yeah. indeed. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And we we went there because we spoke to the local uh, member of parliament who said, you know, my patch, Vale of Glamorgan, is broadly quite affluent, and a lot of people that live there are kind of middle class, semi rural. Um, but we've got Barry, which is a town which has has really struggled. And on most of the indicators we looked at, we could see that there were high levels of deprivation, um, levels of unemployment, etc. Actually, when we got there, the story for us was one of an area that was beginning to level itself up in a way that you could start seeing in some of the uh, leading indicators, if not some of the lagging indicators. The highest house price growth in the country, I think in 2021, was in Barrie in South Wales, right? And 
there were a few things that really came out to us as being examples of local leaders, and I use that term deliberately, not necessarily just local councils, but local leaders more broadly levelling up. So first, when we said to people, we're coming to Barry, we'd love to meet up with you, almost everyone said, well, let's go to this coffee shop, this one coffee shop. It's called the Pump House, and it was in the waterfront area, and they wanted to take us there because it, for them it was a real example of where Barry was going. This was one of the former, this was formerly a pump house that was used to pump water in and out of the docks. Yeah. And uh, the local authority, with money from the Welsh government, had repaired the roof of this old heritage building and sold it to an entrepreneur. And that entrepreneur had turned this pump house into a combination of a coffee shop and some co-working spaces. It's a yeah. beautiful space, kind of, you know, families go there, young people yeah. grab a cup of coffee. You know, it could be anywhere in... Brooklyn or in Seattle, but it's right in the middle of Barry, South Wales. Yeah. And it's a great example of a bit of public funding, a local entrepreneur coming on and having a commercial business, uh, and that being a source of pride. The broader waterfront area, which was formerly industrial land for the docks, over the course of about 30 years, and partnership between the community, the landowners who are an international private company and the council, have turned it into phenomenal housing, kind of waterfront housing. Um, some developers have come in, but actually it's kind of semi-detached or detached housing. They're kind of family homes as opposed to one or two bed apartments. They are alongside a whole bunch of amenities and leisure activities mm. and in really beautiful natural surroundings. So, you know, local entrepreneurs, community development. Um, the other thing that was really clear is that they had tackled problems with antisocial behavior. So historically, a lot of people would come to Barry for day trips and bring their booze with them and basically sit on the waterfront. And that meant that promenade that you see in Gavin and Stacey was actually not somewhere that families would go. And a local yeah. um, police officer introduced and then policed a no alcohol zone would basically, as people got off the buses from other parts of Wales to basically booze up on the beachfront, would take their cans, pour them down the drain and say, you're welcome to stick around, but you won't drink here. And some of that yeah. over the course of a few years, I believe in the kind of 90s, basically 90s, maybe early noughties, moved the area away from somewhere that you come to drink and families started returning. It changed the whole vibe of the environment without, you know, particularly um, draconian or aggressive tactics, but just kind of common sense neighbourhood policing. And then the final thing they had was was a bit of luck, right? So Gavin and Stacey was hosted there. That gave a real cultural boost. You've got Dave's bus tours that runs around there. You've got businesses (laughs) that have some of that up. But there are lots of other places that have a bit of a spark, a cultural relevance. What Barry did was really capitalise on it. So I guess the combo there of some really exciting capital projects and entrepreneurs, community-backed development, and the fact that they had tackled some of those, you know, what might be seen as soft and cosmetic things like ASD, but things that really matter. And and then uh, also capitalising on a bit of luck that gave them a bit of pride. And so Barry, for us, is a great example of what levelling up in action can look like. It sounds like a fantastic example. So just to come back to your hard-nosed economic point, are there new jobs being created there? I got the point about the lovely coffee shop and the housing and everything, and yeah, I was just yeah. wondering whether people are working in Barry or whether it's a commuter town. Or So it's a really good point, and one I should have picked up in my kind of broad overview. So what is so interesting about Barry is it seems to us, although the local member of parliament and some of the councillors were nervous, that Barry would become a dormitory town or a commuter town for yeah. Cardiff, right? Which is, I don't know, 25 minute train right away, or, you know, it's, it's very well connected to Cardiff, kind of reasonably short drive away. Yeah. Actually, 
Uh, you know, and therefore, because they were worried about that, they wanted more co-working space or et cetera, et cetera. Actually, a lot of people that we spoke to in focus groups were quite relaxed about the fact that a lot of the jobs were going to be created in Cardiff. That in Barry, you would have those non-tradable jobs, your foundational economy jobs, your, you know, parts of the public sector, your um, high street shops, your restaurants, your bars, et cetera. But actually, the people that were going to work in the creative industries or in professional services or whatever else uh, would be going into Cardiff. People were quite relaxed about that. And that maturity of relationship between city and town in which both rely on one another. You know, lots of people would love to work in Cardiff, but they don't want to live there. They'd much rather live in these nice new waterfront homes in Barry. That there's a win-win there. And actually, that's something that we haven't found when we've done work across the country. We did some work in South Shields. And the South Shields-Newcastle relationship, um, or the kind of uh, relationship between Clacton and cities in Essex, uh, is is not there. There's actually a degree of resentment and frustration um, so, no, Barry's probably not going to be where loads of foreign direct investment is coming. They do have some manufacturing industry there, which is is good. But the future for Barry is probably going to be being part of that Cardiff city region. Yeah. And I think that's OK. And I think the oh, yeah, sounds, yeah, that does sound OK, actually. Yeah, I mean, it, it reflects uh, just the type of developments and projects that you're talking about there reflect some of what we're seeing in some of our experience of supporting areas with levelling up. So just. To give some other examples for listeners, uh, just recently supported Carefilly, remaining with the Welsh theme, to get levelling up funding for a health and, and wellbeing hub. So, you know, a leisure centre in old, in old parlance, but it's, it's a health and wellbeing hub because it's more than a leisure centre now. There's all sorts of community spaces and everything there. So, and a lot, a lot of the levelling up funding, um, for successful bids seems to be focused around getting investment for a particular anchor piece of investment. So in Carefilly, it's the health and well-being hub. In West Lindsay, it's a new cinema in the middle of town that would then try and drive footfall and extra restaurant investment and things like that. So there's lots of interesting stuff. And I know that there are great case studies like your reporting and others that if other council areas are looking for ideas, that there's tons of stuff out there. Yeah, absolutely. There has been a lot of talk about the resource intensive competitive bidding process, which was required for an area to get leveling up fund money. And, you know, we successfully supported a lot of councils to do that. So I declare a bit of an interest there. But Mm. even the councils that were successful, and I know this is something that Andy Street has talked about as well, going back to him. That even though the West Midlands was relatively successful in getting public money, it, it's, there's, there's a feeling that it's a very resource intensive process to bid for and get this funding. And whilst part of your head, one's head might say, this is fine. It's competitive. The best ideas win out, but there's always that suspicion that that's not the case and it's, and it's political. And even if it is a case of the best areas winning out, the areas that miss out are not only not getting the funding, but have expended all of this resource trying to get the funding and are now in a worse position. What's your view on the right way to distribute central funds? So I think there is sometimes a role for competitive bidding. So if yeah. you are trying to allocate resources that can only go to you know one or two places. Um, so I often think of R&D funding here. If you are going to create a new 
you know, satellites catapult somewhere in the UK, you probably do want a small number of areas to put forward their best case, and then you decide where it gets that really advanced resource. Yeah. That is a very specific example, and we are miles away from using competitive bidding only in specific ways. Um, so I think that the, the fact that competitive bidding was used for the levelling up fund, which was not extraordinarily specific, right? 4.2 billion. Chances are every area in the country in one of the three rounds is going to get some of that funding. And by requiring the level of um, bid uh, and the process that, that was put in place, I think they did. Uh, they The government hampered scenarios that struggle to put forward um, a case. And actually, the areas that are um, challenge the most in articulating where these projects should go are exactly the areas that need the funding and need the investment. So I think it is it's resource intensive and it is not a particularly effective way to identify areas that are most um, deserving or where there's the most potential. Um, and as you say, I think it's led to a lot of poorly allocated public money that could have been better. You know, I've got no doubt, Andrew, that the work you did with councils was fantastic. I think that nationally, a lot of the money that has gone to third parties would have been better invested in the councils themselves, building functions that could then uh, be used for other purposes. So data analytic capability is a classic one of those. I would love every single council to have a small team that can do data and evidence that supports their ongoing work, not just a particular bid for a particular deadline. I think that's exactly right. And on that specific point of gathering data and evidence, when we were working with councils, that that was part of the biggest challenge, gathering that, particularly for district councils. So it was in in a county district environment, it was the district councils who were able to bid for funding. And most of them have extremely small corporate centres and very little capacity. And just because of all the other things they have to do, not a great grip on their data. So just on the competitive bidding and whether it was a fair process or not, I mean, one reflection that I've got is that we supported quite a few areas. And within those areas, there were two conservative ultra marginal seats that I was totally convinced would get funding. They didn't. But Carefilly and Lewisham, who we supported, which are never going conservative, did. So I just found in our own little sample it didn't reflect that at all so it goes to show you know it's not necessarily that but I mean I guess there's a chance that because there's a round three coming up some of those marginal seats might get funding closer to an election time but I won't ask you to comment on that um so just moving on from leveling up now I because because I know Onward are involved in a whole range of other research projects. And I saw recently that you produced some really interesting research on generative AI and how that can best be harnessed to help the UK gain a competitive advantage. And this has really struck home for me as well recently. Like over the past three, four months even, this has really taken off as a as a topic. And you know, one of the things I was thinking to myself is I am sure that somewhere in the country cabinet reports for councils unbeknown to possibly the people reading them have been generated using chat gpt i wonder if we could just start with that because this is something that the public sector really needs to get a grip on because it is the most exposed i feel in terms of this and i am sure lots of stuff is happening in this area that there are no policies around yeah. And I think the big risk with generative AI and actually some of the other work we're doing 
the risk is that because government hasn't got a lot of space to really consider, okay, what's happening here, what's changing, it has to just react very quickly. And civil servants are up against massive pressures and deadlines. You end up just reverting to what feels familiar. So on generative AI, that might be, okay, how do we ban this? How do we tax this? How do we impose a moratorium or you know, how do we just launch an AI team or something like that? You know, actually, there are going to have to be nuanced approaches to this. And so our, our report on generative AI was subtitled uh, Opportunities, Shocks and Risks. There are going to be some massive opportunities that we, if we capitalise on, so in terms of the public sector, I mean, God, the productivity potential um, for some of our public services is enormous if we can properly diffuse generative AI throughout um, the NHS, throughout the education system, et cetera, et cetera. God, you know, my um, sister-in-law is a teacher. Lesson planning could just be completely transformed if we had a tool that harnessed generative AI and LLMs. But shocks, you know, there are going to be shocks to the labour market, how fast they are and how soon they occur are up for grabs. But there will be a transition, just as there has been with other technologies. How do we get ready for that? And how do we ensure that um, it doesn't come as a surprise, even if it's something that's quite sudden? And then the final area around risks, a lot of this stuff on um, alignment and safety around the AI, are these tools going to do what we think uh, we want them to do you know we might input here's a task for you but the way it gets yeah. there causes real harm or doesn't conform to our ethical principles then that could be a real concern and there are lots of you know jeffrey hinton and others who have been yeah. um very instrumental in developing these technologies that are suddenly very worried so on you know our, our report that a guy called Shabir Morali, a former special advisor in government, wrote for onward on this, was focusing on those three things, opportunities, shocks and risks. And yeah. we're actually doing some really good cross-party work at the moment with the Tony Blair Institute to try and educate uh, members of parliament. So, to you know, we like to be a bridge, if we can, in think tank land between academia and politics. Um, you know, probably more robust than journalism, but not with the timelines of academia. We sit right in the middle. And we want to play a role in making sure that members of parliament are up to date with the latest. And yeah. so we're trying to do that, that work now. And so what does your report conclude as a country? Are we, are, are we on top of this? Are we, re- are we prepared to, to make the most of it in terms of economic benefits, in terms of social outcomes that it could support? So we've made a really good start, actually, in the the creation of the Department for Science, Innovation and Technology, the allocation of £100 million to a um, uh, kind of LLM task force or an AI task force, and some of the investments we've put in creating, increasing compute, the kind of computing power that's available. All of those are really positive steps. But, you know, there was this period during the pandemic when the government announced something that was record-breaking in terms of its scale or its pace, and everyone went, wow, this has really changed the game. And then... Three weeks later, they announced something even more dramatic, you know, kind of um, whether that's the uh, furlough scheme or something else. I think we're in similar territory where we'll announce something that seems quite big and quite bold. But then just a few months later, that will not be seen as enough. And so we are well positioned. You know, Google DeepMind are based in London. Some of our universities are really advanced in this. The fact that we have the professional services and technology companies distributed around the country uh, is fantastic. The highest growth in tech companies in the last year registered in Companies House, but not in London and the Southeast. They're in the East Midlands. We have really good geographical distribution on this, um, and we've got academic strengths. It's the public sector and politicians that I think now need to catch up and be leading, as opposed to following uh, the conversation around 
around AI. Fantastic. And just moving on from AI then, I know you've got lots going on at Onboard. What else is going on and is there anything you want to take the opportunity to talk a bit about? God, we've got some fantastic papers at the moment. We're just about to release one on the hydrogen levy. So I've had to be oh, well. educating myself on how hydrogen works. Essentially, trying to argue with the government that, of course, we need to invest in ramping up the production of hydrogen. Almost every forecast of our future energy mix has hydrogen as part of it. But at the moment, the government are trying to fund that investment by a levy on energy bills, on household energy bills. We think that's a mistake. It's regressive. It's bad for business. And we have proposed a way um, that we can fund it via um, the Treasury via yeah. funds that we don't think they've allocated, not just by borrowing, but by specific net zero funds that we'll identify in the report on Friday. We've got some work on a new UK version of national service. Um, it's an, a debate which comes up fairly regularly, so we're not talking about a military version here. But, you know, different countries yeah. around the world, France in particular, are revisiting the idea of a national service yeah. programme to tackle what we describe as young people being unskilled, unhappy and unmoored, that there's an employability challenge. And maybe I'm going to say maybe lacking a bit of resilience maybe as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's a bit of the unhappy piece, right? That actually there's a huge mental health challenge. But that's because a lot of the experiences which build resilience, young people have been, you know, disrupted, they've been robbed of because of the pandemic. Partially, I really worry about Gen Z coming through. There are a huge number of mental health challenges, you know, and they might be just broader um, mental wellness challenges or specific kind of medical challenges, but but they are un- unhappy using a very kind of generic use of that word. So we are curious about whether national service, you know, a, a kind of short compulsory period in which young people build some of those connections, those skills, that resilience, that purpose, whether that might have a role. And again, we've got the space as a think tank to understand what other countries are doing. We sent one of our researchers to Paris to chat to a bunch of the people that are designing and implementing this policy yeah. so that's the sort of stuff we want to feed into the Westminster debate but there's a you know, one of the joys of my job is the range of stuff that we get to work on um, yeah. and there's a lot of it coming out quite soon there there certainly is um I want to give you an opportunity to say something about some of the thinking on we're doing around patriotism because there it, it has become and I think we need to start talking about this that it's almost very unfashionable to be proud of your country and that is immediately painted as being in some way very right wing or just it, 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 all of the negative connotations are associated with it in public discourse at the minute. Indeed. And I think so. I'm really interested in this question of patriotism. And I think you're right. It's a problem if it is perceived as something that only people on the ultra right wing talk about. I think it's really important because there are a huge number of things that we need to do as a country that are going to require mutual sacrifice in various ways, whether that's reaching energy security, whether that's decreasing our reliance on foreign powers in terms of trade, uh, whether that is in terms of levelling up, that some parts of the country are going to need additional investment. Other parts of the country will probably end up needing more housing. There will be moments when we say, "Okay, look, I'm going to take the loss this time and you take the win. But overall, we're both going to win. Right. And that we're not we're not very good at that. We're not so bad at that. And it requires a sense of solidarity, right, between north and south, city and town, urban and rural, a sense of a wider us. And there are moments when that wider us starts to become visible. I think they're often around national moments like the coronation, like the death of the queen. They're often around sport. They're often around music. Eurovision was a recent moment when there was a wider us. 
And there are points where I you, mean, wider us, but it looks like nobody voted for our entry. But anyway, but even even better, right? Because that bonds us against those. <laughs> and, and I think that that you know that that sense of connection and shared purpose is something that yeah. if we don't have, we are not going to be able to see out some of the enormous challenges we've got coming up in the next 10, 20, 50 years. And that's why I really do not mean patriotism as a sort of you know, pledge allegiance to a flag type thing. I mean it as I recognise that I have a common bond with someone that lives in Scotland, in Northern Ireland, in Manchester, in Clacton, wherever else, and that that means that I'm willing sometimes for them to benefit, me not to benefit, because um, in the end we're all going to win. That That's the sort of yeah. thing I'm in by, and it's super important. No, I, th- I think that's a fabulous way of expressing it. I really appreciate that. So, just for as a final question, what bit of advice would you give to someone working in or around public services in delivery or policy development who wants to make an impact in the way that you have? Um, I think that some of the things I've, I was proudest of when I was in public service and enjoyed the most were when I met someone for a coffee or spotted someone doing some work outside of the public sector or the local authority and my question was, what can I do with the resources and the levers I have available to help them do the fantastic thing they're doing? So it wasn't how can I kind of bring them in to join a task force within the combined authority or whatever else. Yeah. It was, we're just, you know, we might just be about to launch a however many tens of thousand pounds scheme on the digital economy. Is there someone already doing that organizing advocacy work? Yeah. And how can we position them using the convening power we have? So I think my my steer would always be look for partners and and don't just partner with them in the traditional sense of, okay, let's work together on a project. How can I make sure that they gain in power and influence? Because actually in 10 years time, if they're if they're flying, that's going to benefit certainly the city, the region, the town. But it's also going to help us as a local authority, combined authority, district council, whatever else. It's going to help us as well, because you don't always have to be the quarterback. And sometimes you can have someone else that's playing that anchor foundational quarterback role. And you can be, you know, the weaker partner. That's fine sometimes, not all the time, but it's sometimes fine to take that role. It is so important to be willing to let other people take credit. That's true mm-hmm. leadership and really the role of public services. It has to be. Yeah. yeah. Adam, really enjoyed the conversation. Many thanks for your time. Thank you. Right. There's a lot to talk about there. I think the first thing that should come across when you listen to Adam is that he is working at a think tank, but has clearly spent time working within public services, his particular experience being with Andy Street in the West Midlands. And I think that shines through in how he describes the work that Onward do and his understanding of local places. I also loved how he described how Andy Street, despite having an an incredibly successful business career at John Lewis, knew that being a mayor was going to be a completely different challenge and actually took himself away for some pretty serious executive training. I thought that was fantastic to see and and I hope a lot of other mayors do that type of thing. Leveling up is something I talk about a lot and listening to Adam, there's clear expertise there. He knows a lot about it. He's done his research and I love the concept of leveling up fast and slow and I can see very clearly in the projects we work with the different elements of that. So Adam gave examples of levelling up fast, uh, particularly around things like antisocial behaviour. You can take action on that really quickly. And the example of Barry, where people would arrive with their 
with their cans of beer and be told immediately you can stay but you can't drink that here and that's a really good example of how you can make a quick impact there's also examples of doing some public realm work to improve how a place looks and feels but then on the flip side there's that leveling up slow which is about attracting inward investment creating real jobs creating growth within an area and as adam said that takes more time and clearly for places to level up it needs to do both the leveling up fast work can act as a trigger to attract companies and inward investment and you know if like barry you're very comfortable to be a commuter town it can attract developers it can attract people to want to live there because it's a nice place to live so there are so many different lenses through which you can look at leveling up and i think this conversation with Adam explored a lot of them and should be really useful to people listening. So I want to talk a little bit about AI, artificial intelligence, and particularly how it interacts with public services. It feels like in the last couple of months, the whole world has woken up to the possibility, the opportunity, the threat of artificial intelligence. I think the work that Onward have been doing on the impact of generative AI is really important. So this is the chat GPT example where you ask it a question and it, it gives you a fairly intelligent answer. Um, I think there's some risk there and that sometimes the answer is a bit hallucinogenic, as they call it, that it sort of invents facts and things. But there's definitely a place for machine learning and artificial intelligence and in public services, particularly as Public service professionals are trying to make decisions with incomplete sets of information. And if you had some sort of artificial intelligence assistant that could look at all of the all of the bits of information that are out there about, for example, a family, a person, and to flag to that professional, you might want to take a look here. You might want to take a look at this situation. I, I don't see how that can be a bad thing if, because it's not removing the professional judgment from the human, the the social worker, for instance, but it is helping them not to miss things. And that surely has to be worth looking at. So I want to finish by talking a little bit about patriotism. And I thought Adam spoke very persuasively about that. The term, the concept of patriotism has become captured really as a very negative term. And I thought the way Adam described it as a way of feeling a sense of solidarity with the people you coexist with and this isn't about pledging allegiance to to the flag and being anti-anybody not from your area it's about that feeling of i'm willing to sacrifice a bit to help this person over here or even better that person in a different part of the country we're clearly going to be facing some serious challenges as a country over the next number of years possibly longer and a little bit of this type of mindset solidarity willing to sacrifice i think is going to be so important so i'm really glad that adam was willing to talk about that as a subject so that's everything for this episode many thanks for your time as always don't forget to follow us wherever you get your podcasts and look forward to seeing you next time <laughs>